Mark Iaconelli has been a, a thoughtful leader and teacher of ours for many, many years. And uh, he was with us actually nine, ten years ago when we did a retreat. And it was just an amazing, wonderful time of centering and of practice. And uh, he is the executive director of The Hearth in Oregon. It's a storytelling community and all sorts of wonderful activities open for people of all different spiritualities and, and journeys to come together and tell stories and to engage with stories of other people. And it's just a beautiful community that has been created up there. Um, and it's really a culmination of just decades of work that Mark has been doing. Uh, Danielle did a spiritual uh, direction certificate with Mark uh, uh, during that time a couple years ago. Um, and we have just learned a tremendous amount from his leadership, his teaching, his mentorship, and all that stuff. Most recently, he's the author of several books, and most recently, Between the Listening and the Telling, you guys have heard us talk about this multiple times over the last several weeks, how stories can save us. And it, if you have not gotten this, I, there's a couple books that really solidify, like, if you could encapsulate a little bit of what Spark is or what Spark and strives to be. This is one of those books and how the stories are told and how we are invited to engage. So I'd encourage you to take a look at that. They are on sale in the back a lot. Oh, and Mark brought his other book back there, The Gift of Hard Things. So make sure that you check out the books afterwards. Spark, would you please, and especially for those of you who uh, were there, there this weekend, give uh, Mark Iaconelli a big, uh, another warm welcome as he comes and shares. Thank you, Kevin. Hello, everyone. Hello, campers, friends. Let's, um, you know, one of the things we talked about at the weekend was just learning that much of the spiritual life is just trying to relax. Trying to, when our bodies relax, right? When we, when we go to sleep, and some of you may fall asleep during this sermon, it's an act of trust, right? It's an act of trust. It means we feel safe where we're at. And so it's a beautiful teacher in how to pray. Just falling asleep. You, you can count that as a spiritual practice tonight. Just before you fall asleep, just, God, I want to be with you. I give my life over to you, or, or help me, Lord, and then fall asleep. And the next day, you can tell Kevin and Danielle, I prayed for seven hours last night. <laughs> and they'll, they, on the scoreboard they have in the little secret room back there, you'll get <laughs> extra credit and special points, right? So why don't we just take a minute here, close your eyes. We're just practicing, right? We're practicing giving up. And one of the ways we do that, just right now, give yourself permission to be here, to sit in the chair. And if your mind is wandering or it's noticing all the sounds outside or around, that's okay. That's happening. That's part of the world right now. Just you be you. Let the world be the world. And just allow God to be God. You don't have to control anything. We're just here. And just being present, sitting where you are, being your precious self. Just with the, the eyes of the heart. 
just glance over and notice our secret friend. This quiet, gentle, compassionate presence that loves the world into being. That's here with us right now in, in a very ordinary way. Just holding us, patiently waiting for when we have time, for when we want to turn our attention. And just say within yourself, in the direction of God, here I am, here I am. And just in the silence, like spotting a good friend across a crowded room or a, a loved one across a, a crowded room, just make eye contact. Just, just notice, acknowledge, I see you, and you see me. Isn't it good to be alive? And then just allow a simple gratitude, a simple thankfulness to rise up within you. For this time, for your health, for the safety of where we live, for the chance to grow and learn and heal. Simple gratitude just rising up within you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. We're grateful. We're grateful. We're so very grateful for this place and time and for you. And we pray all this in the name of the, the quiet one, the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. So, try that, you know, just once in a while, you, you go to work, you get there a couple minutes early just before you turn to the stuff on your desk, close your eyes, <sighs> exhale, here I am, there you are, that's it, don't have to recite things, don't have to control things, just, just the noticing matters, just the acknowledgement matters. Try that. Um, there's a teacher named Mary Gordon. She's from Toronto. She, um, one of those people who just wanted to do good, wanted to change the world, wanted to make a difference. So she goes into, she decides she's going to go into education. She gets her teacher's degree. And when they start looking for jobs, she's like, where are the schools that nobody wants to go to? That's where I want to go. And they say, well, there's an inner city school in this one part of Toronto, they have trouble getting teachers. Great, that's where I'm going. Sure enough, she gets a job teaching sixth grade. She's smart, she's capable, she's gifted. She goes into the classroom with all of these ideas. Problem is, in schools like that, right, they don't have enough staff. You got a lot of kids from at-risk environments who haven't 
had the kind of care and love they need. And so mostly, she said, what I did in that class was just tried to keep the kids from hurting one another. I didn't really get to teach any of my great ideas. I didn't get to do all the brilliant curriculum I had. I was just mostly trying to keep things under control. And it was frustrating and it was stressful. So desperately, she sent a letter home knowing that a lot of folks were working hard, that their uh, financial situations were rough, but she sent a letter home anyways. Could I get some parent volunteers in this class? One mother volunteered, and this mother had a baby. She said, yeah, I can try to help. Great. The mother walks in with the baby. All the kids notice this little seventh, eight-month-old child, and they're immediately enamored by the baby. Mary Gordon, very clever educator, says, everybody push the desks out, sit in a circle on the floor. We're studying babies. Get your notebooks. And they, put the, she, they put the baby on the floor. Okay, I want you to notice what's going on with this child. And they're noticing things. Oh, she's frustrated. Oh, she's, yeah, yeah. What's her emotions like? Well, she's not afraid to show her emotions. And so she develops this whole curriculum, teaching reading, math, and all this stuff using the baby. Because they were interested in this. And so this baby becomes a part of the class. Well, in that classroom, she had a, a particularly a difficult young person named Damien. I don't know why they always get names like Damien. You know, it's always Damien or Chucky or uh, Voldemort. But Damien was in this class, and Damien was really rough. And she knew the backstory, right? So Damien, uh, when he was five years old, he witnessed uh, his father shoot and kill his mother. His father was in prison. And he had been passed around from one foster home to another. You imagine what that does to to a human being who needs love and and care and safety. And so he was rough in the classroom. He was often violent. He was disruptive. He was difficult to be with. And he looked scary. He had shaved half of his head. And he had what they called uh, like a prison tattoo, she said. Somebody had used, using pen and ink, had made a skull on the side of his head that he kept shaved, and he was just diff- really difficult and scary for the other kids. And often she had to send him out of class just to keep order. One day she's using her baby curriculum. This little girl, eight-month-old girl, would take a nap at, in the mid-morning. And she said, I was working with a couple kids. I look across the room, and the mother of this eight-month-old baby is holding her daughter, and it's that nap, sleepy time. And I see Damien walk over and say, can I hold her while she takes her nap? And she said, I almost like knocked over all the kids in front of me, just, no, save that child, you know. But before I could do anything, the mother said, yeah, sure, yeah, of course. Took off her little front pack, put it on Damien, put her baby in the front pack, And without, you know, naturally, Damien just started doing the bounce, right? Started walking around holding this little girl. And he's watching her, and he's bouncing. And, of course, this little child has no judgment. It's a warm body. This young boy is giving her the bounce, which she likes. And she's sleepy, and she trusts, and she hasn't been trained to be defensive and protective and 
So she leans her head on his chest and slowly, slowly falls asleep. And Damien notices this. And he's kind of amazed. And he starts going up to other students going, look at that. She's sleeping. She's just sleeping on me right now. She's totally asleep. Showing others, look at that. She's, she's sleeping. She's totally out. And then he goes up to uh, Mrs. Gordon, the teacher, and he's like, do you see that she's sleeping? Yeah. And he says, hey, can I ask you a question? She says, yeah. He said, is it possible to be a good parent if you've never been loved? Yeah. And, you know, in that moment when I heard her say this, you know, I thought this, this young boy noticed, it, noticed something. You know, he was trusted by this child, and that little act of trust reminded him that I'm not the monster that everybody thinks I am. That I'm not just the damaged kid with the terrible backstory. I'm not just the traumatized boy. I'm not just the scary one who gets thrown out of class. I have a capacity to love. Look at her. She trusts me. And that little child drew forth uh, the divine image in him. The, that, that original name that this boy had, that he is beloved. How do we coax forth? You know, this is always the question I'm interested in. How do we bring forth love in the way that Jesus is trying to show us? How do we coax forth love in us? so that it moves through our body, so it loosens the knots in our muscles, so that it helps to heal the trauma, so that it soothes the pain and the fear, so that we feel more free to become who we really are. How do we coax forth love in our bodies so that we're not so scared of one another, so that we can move into places where there's pain and hurt and fear and violence and we can be a source of peace and care? How do do we do that with one another? And how do we find a way to feel at home with God and at home in the world that we could heal this planet and heal the things that harm it? How do we bring forth love? That's what this is, right? All churches, all communities are schools of love. That's what this is. And one of the things you do is you go on retreat. And one of the things you do is you sing. And one of the things we do is we pray. And we tell stories, and we seek to coax forth love. And it's difficult, because, and I just want to touch on some of the things you can feel for those who weren't here this weekend. You know, it's difficult in this culture, because in this culture, we're judged by the three A's. And, and those of you young folks, you, you already know this very well. You're judged on your appearance, how you look, right? The better you look, the more value you have in this culture. Isn't that insane? Right? We're judged by how we look. And the second thing is we're judged by what we achieve. Our resumes, our degrees. What we are, the better our achievements, then the stronger our worth. And then third, we're judged by what we accumulate, or our affluence, how much money and wealth we have. If you can get those three right, all surface, right? All surface level things. But in this culture, then you'll be okay. Then you'll be loved then you have worth and value. And it's a lie. And it's a lie. And it breaks many families and many people searching for those three things. You know, having surgery over our bodies, striving and working harder than we need to, 
judging ourselves because we haven't accomplished or achieved what the expectations are of the culture. So how do we coax forth love? Well, what we do is, and this is, this is really hard in a culture that focuses so much on striving, is we do nothing. The um, obnoxious thing about grace that our egos can't really um, go along with is that grace only requires us to receive. To just receive. God's love comes to us unmerited, generously. It comes from within us. It comes around us. It comes between us. And you don't have to do anything. We just have to receive, which is maybe the hardest thing, and particularly in the towns around here, where everything is earned, right? But we have to find a way to give up. That's why I wish your spiritual practice was napping, Right, Just napping, finding ways to give up control, to sit still, to, to allow yourself to be cared for. You have to learn to do nothing, and the heart loves naturally. Um, I, ran a, I ran youth groups for a long time, worked with young people, and we had, a, we had a youth group where the kids in the group, this was up in, in Marin County, I was, I was teaching at San Francisco Theological Seminary, and I ran a youth group at a church nearby in San Anselmo, and, and the kids loved coming to youth group. They loved church. We had a, a lot, a really just got lucky. We just had some really beautiful things happening at that time, it felt like, and, uh, but the kids were embarrassed to tell anybody at school that they went to church and that they were Christians. So I, one night I thought, well, let's just kind of figure out what, what's the root of this. So I said, hey, we're going to do a thing called a role play. Now, the role play is we're, we're going to act out some scenes and see if that helps us to have a dialogue about why it's embarrassing to talk about going to church at school. So let's pretend this is the cafeteria, and this is, uh, this is uh, the lunch tables at your school. And if I could have one person, you are like a loud and proud Christian. You, you really believe in God, and you're, you, you want to talk about God. And I need well, somebody just play that role, and, and you sit in this chair, and then someone else, you're really antagonistic, you don't think this stuff is really true, and, and, and you pretend that you sit in the lunchroom here, and let's just see what happens in this conversation. So a uh, young woman named Kim Plank, you know, Kim Plank was one of those kids in my youth group where I just tried to stay away from her, you know, she loved God, read the Bible, went to church, it's just like, don't mess with whatever's happening here. And she came and sat in the Christian chair. The kid that gets up to sit in the non-Christian chair is a kid named Chris. Chris would um, skateboard uh, around the, the church, he, and he would come in because we had a free dinner every night. He'd come in to eat dinner, and I didn't know much of his background. Chris sits in the non-Christian chair. So I said, okay, so you, tie, you two just sat in the, in the school lunchroom. Let's see what happens. And so Kim, the Christian, says, hey, I want to tell you about about uh, this youth group I go to, you know, it's about God, and I, and I love God, and, and um, you know, and the reason I love God is because I read the Bible, and the Bible tells me in this case, I don't believe in the Bible, the Bible's a bunch of myths. Now, if you got stuck and you didn't know what to do, all you had to do was raise your hand, and someone else could take your place and keep the drama going. So as soon as he said, I don't believe in the Bible, I think it's a bunch of myths, she didn't know what to do, and she raised her hand, okay? So another kid, Bill, he comes up, he sits in the Christian chair, and he just picks up the, the, the scene, and he says, oh, you know, it doesn't matter if you um, don't read the Bible, because if you look around the world, you can tell that there's a creator. 
you can tell just by the beauty of the flowers and the birds and the rhythm of the, rhythm of the seasons, you know, that there's some kind of intelligence and some kind of gift of love. And you can see the whole time Chris in the non-Christian church is getting agitated. And finally he just says, okay, hang on a second. You're telling me, look around the world and you'll notice there's a loving God. He said, when I was six years old, I grew up in Compton, Los Angeles. I was playing in a playground. There was a gang fight, and a bullet came across the playground, and it hit my friend Benjamin in the chest. And I was the only one there, and I stood next to him and watched him shake and die. And you tell me, look around, and you'll see there's a God of love? And we all froze. Because we knew Chris isn't doing the role play right now. Chris is telling us something real. And Bill, over here in the Christian chair slowly raised his hand. He wanted out. Now, at that time, in this youth group, um, there was a, a young man who lived next door who came, who came for two or three years that I was there. His name was John Keating. Big guy, six foot two, kind of quiet. And about eight months before this night at youth group, he had been caught breaking into homes around the church. He was would r- rummaging homes for money and prescription drugs, taking the money, he was buying drugs, and he got caught. And in, when he went to the judge, they gave him a choice. He could go to juvenile hall and do time there, or he could do a drug rehab program that was an outward bound program in Idaho. He chose the drug rehab. So he went to Idaho, and for three or four months, he was up in the woods in the wilderness, and for the last two weeks, he had to be by himself in the woods surviving after learning these survivor skills. And part of this was part of the detox, too. Well, this was John Keating's first time back in the youth group after all of this had happened to him. He's sitting there in the back. And the thing about John is he was really honest with me. And he had said when he first came to youth group six months earlier, he said, I just want you to know, Mr. Iaconelli, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in any of this Christian stuff. I just come because I, w- I like getting away from my parents and there's a lot of cute girls here. I said, okay, well, thanks for being honest. You know, you're welcome here. So John is sitting in the back. Chris has just confessed this thing that happened to him in the park. Bill raises his hand. He doesn't want to be in the Christian chair anymore. He doesn't know how to deal with this. And all of a sudden, John Keating stands up. And he starts walking towards the Christian chair. And I'm over here as the youth director watching this going, oh, crud. This is a bad night. You know, because I know what John's going to do. John's going to sit in the Christian chair and he's going to look at Chris and he's going to say, you're right. You're right. There is no God. And it's about time somebody said it here. And so I'm over there figuring out, how do I get us out of this? What do I do? How do I kind of bring this together? John comes up, sits in the Christian chair. Before he does, he picks up the table and he moves it aside. So it's just he and Chris sitting right next to each in front, facing each other. And Chris goes back into it. He says, what are you going to tell me now that you're in the Christian chair? Are you going to tell me that uh, maybe Benjamin's in a better place, or I should learn from this, or God can't really do anything about suffering? I mean, what kind of answer could you possibly give me? And he just keeps going on and on and on, and he's angry. And John is just sitting there listening and looking at him and listening and looking to him until finally Chris just gets quiet. And they just look at each other just in silence for about 30 seconds. And then John stands up and he puts his hands on Chris's shoulder and he stands him up and he puts his arms around him. And Chris 
just starts to wail. Just, just tears and tears and tears. And John just holds him like with the patience of God. Like, I'm not going anywhere. We're staying right here. He just stays there until Chris can kind of pull himself together. And then he puts his arm around him and he walks him back into the group among the other students and he sits next to him. And John never said a word. Not one word. The whole time I was worried about how to manage, control, fix, teach. John was looking at Chris. And John was listening to Chris. And by being present to him, his heart broke open. And he thought, probably, I got to go up there. I don't even know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to start walking. And when he sat down, he realized, we can't have this table here. And then he sat there listening. And he allowed himself to feel. And then he did what we all know how to do naturally, but have been trained to no longer do. He allowed his heart to break open with compassion, and then he responded. Here I am. I know pain. Here I am. Our hearts carry the image of God, and we all know how to love generously, bravely, with courage, with patience and kindness. But we have to be here. We have to be present. We have to be willing to see to look and see each other, to listen to one another without our advice and our judgment and our analysis and our projections. Just listen. Just look. And the heart moves naturally. The heart moves naturally. And then we respond. Right? That created in the image of God, this is, this is what happens. And when we're willing to be present, we know love. The terror of love, the confusion of love, the work of love, when we're willing to be present. Because God, where's God? Right here, right now, in this present moment. And the suffering is that we're never here. We're distracted from our distractions by our distractions, as T.S. Eliot says. We're not present, and so we miss. What happens when you have a friend who gets cancer, right, or gets illness? They slow down. They slow down, and they start going, gosh, did you see the sun come up this morning? Did you hear the sound of the children on their way to school just outside? I used to be annoyed by it. Now I just love it. I hear them on the other side of my fence on the way to school. And I've been looking at my, you know, my spouse watching her make coffee and stuff. She's so beautiful. You know, we've been together 35 years. I haven't slowed down enough to realize how much I love her, how much I adore what she looks like and what she does for me. I've been so busy focusing on problems and goals and tomorrow and the future and retirement and in the future, in the future, in the future, in the future, and I'm missing now, right now, this life that I have today with a God who's giving me 10,000 gifts, and I walk by them. I walk by them. I walk by them. I have things to do. I have goals to achieve. And we miss it. We miss it. And it's not your fault. It's not your fault. 
we are captured by the principalities and powers in this culture. You came into this world innocent and trusting and loving. When you were born, you had a generous, trusting heart, right? You liked to be held. You liked faces like all babies do. You know, you wanted to meet eyes. You came into this world with a generous heart. You came in carrying the image of God. And then we're trained, we're trained, we're trained to detach from what's most elegant and precious and beautiful within us. And so this is what we're doing here, right? This is a jailbreak here at Spark. We're trying to help one another. Slow down. Slow down. Let God, you know, you have to imagine God's like a a 92-year-old woman in a walker trying to catch up to us with her little bag of candy, right? And so stop running. Let God catch up. Stop running ahead of grace. Let grace catch up to you. You have to stop once in a while. Take a nap. Sit down. Hug someone. Talk to someone. Let grace catch up to you so that you can receive your life, so that you can see how beautiful you are, how your gifts are needed in this world. So I just want to want to close with with uh, with one image. Um, I was talking to three or four people. You know, we were we were discouraged. We were all working in ministry, and just mostly we were discouraged by ourselves. Just um, you know how we're always teaching the things that we still haven't embodied, <laughs> and how frustrating that was. And I, I don't remember what somebody said. You know, when was the last time you experienced grace? Just unmerited, just overflowing, just grace. And my friend Paul was working in, in reconciliation work in, in, in jails and in prisons in um, the west of the United Kingdom. He was particularly working in Cardiff and Wales area. And he said, uh, I got a story for you. He said, um, an accountant in town He's on his way to work. He did what he does. You know, he did something that we all do, right? He's he's late. He's rushing. He's trying to eat while he's driving. His phone starts ringing. His phone is under the seat. He reaches for his phone. He's going too fast. He's not paying attention. He's he's hectic, right? And when he reached for the phone, he turned the bump to the wheel, went up onto a sidewalk, and he hit a man. He slams the brakes on. They come out, and it was bad. Uh, it was terrible head injury that he had caused to this young man, a young father with a four-year-old, and they rushed the man to the hospital. And they took the driver into the jail, and they called me. And I go in, and he said, this accountant is completely distraught. You know, just feels awful, awful, awful. And then I go to the hospital, and there's the man. He's all hooked up to all these life-saving devices, and the wife's there, and the boy's there, and his parents are there. And I go and talk to the doctor, and they say, it, he's not going to make it. It's, the machines are, he's, he, it, the head injury's too bad, and we're just waiting uh, until we unhook the devices. So then I know this is going to be a manslaughter case, and he's, they're going to have to keep him in jail and trying to figure out how to negotiate this. So for two days, they keep the injured man alive, the injured father. And the family's trying to, they're praying. They're bringing in other experts. 
They're doing everything they can until they finally realize, okay, we're going to have to let them go. And, um, and I was there. And he said, you know, I prayed with the family. We go into the room. It was just me, the mother, and this four-year-old boy. And the four-year-old boy crawls up on his dad's body. And he's begging and pleading, do not do this. Don't turn these things off. I know he'll get better. And he said the mother just patiently stayed there. And we stayed there for hours just while he cried and while she talked to him and while they hugged um, her husband. And then the boy, tired and worn out, they picked him up and they unplugged the devices. And after a little while, his breathing stopped and he passed. And we went out and the mother all of a sudden said to me, what's happening with, with the driver, the, the guy who drove the car? I said, well, he, he's on suicide watch, to be honest with you. He's, he's in the jail. Um, he'll be processed for manslaughter, and you know they'll, he'll, they'll probably set bail tomorrow or something like this. And she stopped for a while, and she said, okay, hold on for a second. And she gave her son to her in-laws. And she said, I want to go to the jail right now. He said, well, we can arrange it. No, I want to go right now. So we got in the car, and we drove in silence. She looked out the window the whole time. We showed up at the jail where I've been many times. We walked in. I had called ahead. They set up a little room. And this now widow and I sit in a chair, and they bring the driver out, this accountant. He sits there. He can't even look at her, and he's just crying. And... The woman says, listen, I know this was an accident. And he starts saying, I know, but I should. I didn't. And he's making all, starting to talk and make all these excuses. And the woman's trying to figure out what to say, and eventually she just goes to the other side of the table. And she picks him up so he'll stand. And she puts her hands on the side of his face, and she says, it was an accident. I want you to live. I want you to live. It was an accident. And then we leave. And so Paul says, you ask me about grace? I met grace in that room. I saw grace in that room. That a woman set aside her own grief, her own confusion, her own sense of how am I going to have a future in this world when I've lost the love of my life? But hearing the pain of another human being, she set it all aside and said, I can do something good right now. And I need to go and help this man to loosen that weight, to feel this forgiveness, and to move forward. Behold the human heart. That heart is in everyone in this room. We have incredible capacities to love to forgive, to be creative and courageous, to solve problems, to, to absorb the trauma and pain of those who have suffered unjustly. We have an incredible capacity, particularly when we come together. You take five and rest, let me go. Okay, now I'm tagging out, you come in. Together we can figure this out. You have a precious treasure here in this community. And I guess my hope as, uh, 
I head back to Oregon tonight, is that you will let yourselves be loved. That's it. Just let yourselves be loved. And when that love begins to overflow, look around, see and hear, be present, and then do what's natural. Just do what's natural. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, so much for the whole weekend and for tonight as well. Um, Sparkers, as is our custom on Sunday evenings, this is the time in which we turn our attention to the table that's set amongst us and amidst us and the table that Christ hosts us at. Um, For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Sparkers, the table's been set for us. All who are hungry, come and eat. All who are thirsty, come and drink. This is not our table. It's not my table. It's Christ's table, and he invites you. His body, his blood, his bread, his juice. You are welcome and invited here. All are welcome at this table. Come. Come.